Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, look, there's been some remarkable scenes of joy and jubilation in Argentina. Buenos Aires today, hundreds of thousands lining the streets as the World Cup winning Argentine national team uh, toured across the city uh, in in an open uh, top bus. The uh, World Cup parade, uh, as mentioned, met with uh, all sorts of uh, celebration and joy in Buenos Aires and and obviously uh, being celebrated across Argentina. And yeah, look, I mean, it was a, a thrilling and remarkable finale on Sunday at the World Cup as Argentina triumphed over France. But there are some important issues we can't ignore and overlook. Now, after back-to-back World Cups in autocracies in uh, Moscow and in, in Russia in 2018 and now Qatar in 2022, the World Cup will shift to North America in 2026. But there was a reason why Qatar was so determined to host this event why they were prepared to spend billions upon billions of dollars, really, it seems, into the hundreds of billions to host this event. And I think we we need to to better understand why that is Uh, in the whole concept of sport washing. Really interesting piece up at thenation.com. The big winners of the 2022 World Cup, Qatar and despots the world over. Even sports washing, the cost of $200 billion, appears to be money well spent. So what are these regimes getting for this money? And how do we change this? Well, joining us, uh, the co-author of that piece is uh, Jules Boykoff, professor and department chair of the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon. Also the author of four books on the Olympic Games and the IOC and former soccer player himself. Professor Boykoff, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be with you. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to talk about these issues because it was, uh, as far as the sporting event goes and the finale itself, uh, it was it was quite remarkable. It really was. You know, I'm glad that you led with the scenes of celebration because it seems to me, Rob, that we can both celebrate the winners, Argentina, one heck of a story. Yeah. The superstars really came through in this World Cup, and it was a good World Cup for Canada as well, a good learning experience for sure, same mm-hmm. for the U.S. But we can do that at the same time. We should be raising these big questions about human rights because sports washing is for real. It's not going away. Maybe I can offer a thumbnail definition for your listeners. Sports washing is when governments such as Qatar use sports to try to look legitimate on the world stage while at the same time deflecting attention from chronic social problems and human rights woes at home. That was definitely happening in Qatar But I've pointed out in my work, this also can happen in places like the United States. Just to give one example, in Los Angeles, who's hosting the 2028 Summer Olympics, the mayor at the time when they were making the bid said that if they got the Olympics, they would be able to deal with and and get rid of homelessness by the time the Olympics rolled around. Well, I don't have to tell you or your listeners, that's definitely not happening in Los Angeles anytime soon. And so it's a really important phenomenon. I'm glad we're having the chance to talk about it today. Well, yeah, and let's understand that better, because uh, Qatar as, as a host country seemed like an odd choice. In fact, I mean, they had to, to 
change when the World Cup would actually occur. Instead of in the summer, they had to move it to, to November. It's a, a, a tiny country. I think they do have a domestic uh, soccer league, but I mean, I don't know that they're going to make use of these uh, eight large stadiums that they built for this mm-hmm. event. So why? Why Qatar? Well, I think you have to go back to the original sin of this World Cup, which was when FIFA gave it to Qatar in the first place. And it must be said that there are serious, incredible allegations of corruption around the awarding of both the 2018 World Cup in Russia and the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. The U.S. Justice Department has been pursuing these cases. They're ongoing. But if you look at FIFA documents themselves, they've essentially admitted that three of their members have had accepted bribes around Qatar. And so it was started with that. Once it was awarded, then they realized pretty quickly it'd be impossible to pull off in the summer. Despite these grand claims by the organizers of Qatar, they'd be able to build these sidewalks that would be air-conditioned. I mean, what a climate change nightmare that would be. I mean, it was already bad enough, let's be honest. This was not good for climate change, this World Cup. But, you know, they kept pressing ahead, and they got full support from FIFA every single step of the way. And I think that's really important to point out. FIFA not only gave them the World Cup, but then essentially ran interference anytime there was some kind of hiccup, whether it was saying that it was okay for Qatar not to serve beer at the games to the great discontentment of Budweiser, a huge sponsor that gives millions to be a corporate sponsor, or more importantly, whether they ran interference for the Qataris who wanted to keep all the protests around LGBTQ rights on the down low. Let's not forget that if you're in a same-sex relationship in Qatar, you can end up with seven years in prison. And FIFA really played a big role in not letting captains of these World Cup teams wear just a simple armband that stood up in solidarity with LGBTQ people in Qatar and elsewhere. And so really it's FIFA that's the prime culprit in a lot of ways for what we just saw transpire. And even the buildup, I mean, you know, there's some really horrifying numbers out there in terms of the number of migrant workers uh, who died and, and otherwise suffered in, in building all of these these stadiums. And, and you know, that that's part of the, the shame that hangs over this event, clearly. No question about it. I mean, that is the backdrop of this World Cup is extreme human rights abuses. You know, I just mentioned the LGBTQ situation. That's horrific enough. But then when you add on top of it, Some 6,500 workers, according to a Guardian study in 2020, 6,500 migrant workers from only five countries Mm -hmm. died in the lead-up to this World Cup. And, you know, the Qatari authorities would say time and again that very few of them died working on actual construction for the World Cup. At one point, they said three people only had died working on World Cup venues. Well, then during the World Cup, a big honcho actually admitted publicly that it was more like, oh, 400 or 500 working directly on these stadiums. And his casualness was just so crass and pretty indicative of what we saw here with the backdrop of human rights. Moreover, FIFA was asked to try to help um, fix this situation to a certain degree or at least give some of the families who had loved ones die, get a little bit of compensation. And FIFA refused to do so time and again. Human Rights Watch asked FIFA to give $440 million, that's the same amount of money they give out for prize money for the World Cup, to families of migrant workers who either failed to get paid or died in the service of building for this World Cup. And FIFA flatly denied them. At the same time, FIFA will walk off from this World Cup with some reportedly $7.5 billion in revenues. Wow. And so they certainly had the $440 million to spare. No kidding. So... 
by some estimates, this cost Qatar upwards of $200 billion, maybe closer to $300 billion, like massive amounts of money. So the question becomes, what did they buy with that money? As you argue in your piece, reputational capital is what they got for that. Mm-hmm. That's what exactly that right. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks for asking that. So, I mean, for starters, Qatar just has loads of money because they're sitting on huge liquid liquefied natural gas reserves and so you know they're partly responsible and of course we in the west who consume these this liquefied natural gas are also responsible for climate change and that's really how they've made their money that they could spend on this world cup like you said well over 200 billion dollars how did they convert that into reputational capital well for starters they kept the arms flowing it really did work they stood up and they shook hands in these grin and grip kind of situations photo opportunities with people from the West. Macron, the president of France, was big time at this World Cup, standing and trying to glean any kind of uh, uh, possibilities of, of looking good on the world stage for himself. So did the emir of Qatar. So did so many big people from Qatar who were in charge there. And so for starters, they kept the arms flowing. I mean, France is a huge supplier of arms to Qatar. Macron gives loads of arms to Qatar. Italy is as well. And the United States, where I'm coming to you from, is also a huge funder of Qatar arms. And so, you know, that could all just stay open for business. Secondly, the World Cup also helped Qatar solidify relations with a number of regional rivals. Let's not forget that back in 2017, there was a blockade carried out by numerous countries, including Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, and uh, a blockade of Qatar. Um, but the tournament helped make that blockade sort of a fuzzy memory. And in fact, if you remember at the opening ceremony of this World Cup, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman cozied up with the Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani uh, at the opening ceremony, something that would have been inconceivable only a few months prior. Uh, Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi also attended the World Cup, as did the President of the United Arab Emirates. And so Qatar benefited tremendously in terms of national security and reputational capital, as you called it before, because of hosting this World Cup. And so what message does that send to other nations who who might see the value in, in doing something similar? It sends the message, go for it, man, because yeah. we're already seeing Saudi Arabia who is uh, angling in for the 2030 Men's World Cup alongside Egypt and possibly Greece in a joint bid for that event. And so it's definitely given the green light to despots around the world, including uh, wannabe despots in the United States, Canada, elsewhere, uh, that, hey, FIFA is open for business. We don't much care about your human rights record. What we care about is continuing to make money off the, the biggest spectacle of sport the world over. It's similar in a lot of ways to the situation with the IOC and the Olympics, isn't it? What are the parallels, and are there any notable or significant differences here? The parallels are really strong. I mean, essentially, you have a parastate-like organization, like the International Olympic Committee or FIFA, that very much acts like a parasite when it comes to the host city and country of the Olympics and the World Cup. Um, But there are differences. I mean, as, as crazy as it sounds, actually, the FIFA has made some changes that make it actually a little bit more palatable than the International Olympic Committee. I mean, FIFA at least lets us know who voted for who these days. They've made the voting process a bit more transparent. They also let uh, all the countries around the world now vote for the World Cup hosts instead of just a small number of about 20 or so on their executive committee. 
The International Olympic Committee, on the other hand, has gone the very opposite direction. They've become much more dictatorial and authoritarian under the current president, Thomas Bach of Germany, and they've limited the number of people who have any real deal influence in deciding the hosts of Olympic cities to down to around a dozen members for the Winter Olympics and a dozen members for the Summer Olympics. And so, I mean, it's not as if it's sort of an oppression Olympics here per se, but both of these organizations are deeply corrupt in many ways, both illegal corruption and legal corruption. But also, um, I would say that at this point, FIFA at least has made some changes that are improvements upon where the International Olympic Committee is these days. Very interesting. Well, your latest, as mentioned, is up at thenation.com and uh, much more julesboycoff.org. Jules, thanks so much for the insight here. Appreciate making some time for us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.